Chili Bible. It's a good week. All right. Uh, in the in England in the year 1660, a man known to history as King Charles II ascended to his throne. He was the first English king to rule in England since his father, King Charles I, was overthrown and beheaded in the year 1649. And once his rule was established, King Charles II set about passing through Parliament a series of laws that came to be known as the Clarendon Codes uh, after his... uh, chief counselor, Lord Clarendon, and all of these were designed to drive Protestants, and particularly Puritan Protestants, from public life. Uh, The first one was known as the Corporation Act, which required all municipal officials to participate in Anglican communion and excluded those who held differing beliefs on things like transubstantiation from public office. Uh, So you could not hold a public job, uh, which, by the way, included pastors. The second law was what was called the Act of Uniformity, which made use of the Book of Common Prayer compulsory in all English worship services. And over 2,000 Puritan pastors refused and were then forced out of their pastorates in an event known as the Great Ejection. Shortly after that, what was called the Conventicle Act prohibited meeting or worship by groups of more than five people in the same house. And finally, Parliament passed and King Charles II enforced what was known as the Five Mile Act which prohibited ejected pastors from coming within five miles of any incorporated town and or within five miles of their former churches. So within, within four years, these laws were passed between 1661 and 1665. Some of them were still in effect as recently as 2010, which is interesting. Um, within four years, there were virtually no Puritan pastors left still serving as pastors. And many of them, in fact, found it very difficult to make a living in any way because of the pressure being brought to bear against them, uh, not only by the law, but by the fact that they were now excluded specifically by, from doing the one thing for which they were qualified, trained, and equipped. And as these men watched these things start to unfold in their country, which had formerly uh, encouraged and, in fact, enforced Puritanism as the worship system of the day, these men did something interesting. Knowing that the twin hammers of royal power and ecclesiastical authority were going to be brought to bear on them, and that they would soon be forced out of their pulpits, what these guys did was wrote uh, farewell sermons. And in fact, uh, they're very good. You can still buy 
collections of these English Puritan pastors' farewell sermons to their congregations. And they, they, in them, what they did was they would set down the things they wanted their congregation to remember and to do now that I'm not going to be here anymore to shepherd you and tell you and, and encourage you to do and remember these things. I want to want to write this down for you. And so, you, like I say, you can still buy these. Uh, they are still relevant today, the things that they want uh, people to do. In fact, uh, I had uh, uh, this, this whole thing came to mind because one of my brother pastors over in uh, Metamora, Dan Lehman, who has actually spoken here once upon a time, ran across this and was telling me about it. This was an aspect of history I didn't, didn't know anything about. And he said, um, he said, so let me ask you, Pastor, if you were going to do your farewell sermon, what would you write? And so I wrote him back an email, and I said, well, if it was me, if I had four weeks left, he goes, you've got a month, you know, uh, tell me what you're going to preach. I said, well, I'd preach the gospel from 1 Peter 3.18, because that's the most important thing that everybody know and hold to. And then I would preach about striving for holiness from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17 and following, because after you believe the gospel, you are saved to follow Christ. And then I would preach about perseverance through suffering and trials through Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 6, because... If you do hold to the gospel and you do live a holy life, you're going to experience some suffering and trial, and you need to be able to persevere through that. And then finally, I'd preach about loving one another from 1 John 4, 7 to 21, because loving one another is the final and most important mark that distinguishes those who believe in the gospel and who are holy and persevering people from everybody else need to love one another. And I thought that was pretty good, but he had four more that he added that I thought were better. I won't share them with you. But uh, in any case, as you look at Hebrews chapter 13, these last several verses that we have, verses 17 to 25, what you have, in a sense, is the apostle's farewell sermon. He's been preaching to you for 12 and a half chapters, And now he's going to give you like the little bullet points, if you will, of some last things he wants you to know and to do at the end because he doesn't know when the next time he's going to see these people is. And in fact, this is the only letter we think from this apostle. We're not entirely certain who wrote it. I had a professor in seminary who was convinced that the author uh, was the, um, the wife of Aquila Uh, Priscilla that instructed um, Apollos, and I asked him why, and he said because, as it says in the text, uh, after he's written 13 chapters, he says, well, only a woman would write, I've written to you briefly, after 13 chapters. Okay, so that was kind of his snarky response, but um, we don't know which apostle wrote this. We do know it's probably the only letter that was ever written to this group of people. And so it's unknown whether or not he ever saw them or uh, whoever wrote this ever saw these folks again. And so these are the last things that the apostle wants these people to know and to do. Um, Hopefully you didn't read the title and think, I didn't know Pastor Joe was leaving. He's not. Don't worry about that. All right. But um, 
But in any case, uh, so we want to look at the we want to look at the text here, and we want to see these last few things. This farewell sermon from the apostles. All right, verse seventeen through nineteen says, "Obey and pray for your leaders." So let's look at those instructions. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner." Now, I have to say that as a pastor, whenever I read or, or look at a passage like verse 17, that it always feels a little awkward to me to be reading that to you, because as a leader in the church, it feels like there's no way to talk about this without feeling a little self-aggrandizing on this. But, and on top of that, we live in a day in which the idea that anyone should have to submit uh, to and obey any authority over them is widely questioned and derided. And we don't hold to uh, the idea of submission and obedience much anymore, much less the idea of submission and obedience to church leadership. That seems a little heavy-handed to a lot of people, that you should have to submit to and obey Uh, church leadership. But nevertheless, submission and obedience to church leadership is the biblical norm. It is the biblical norm. He is not telling them something at the end of this book that he thinks is going to be terribly shocking to them. Like, oh, one more more totally new thing I want to tell you. uh, Obey and submit to your church leaders. It it doesn't come across that way. This is just an ordinary reminder. Like, oh, by the way. Like when you leave your kids with the babysitter. You know, if you have young kids and you have the babysitter there with them, what is the last thing you tell your kids before you go out to dinner? Do what she (laughs) says, right? That's what we tell them, right? Why? Because our, and this is not the first time our kids have been told to obey, Right? But we're just reminding them of something that they already know. And this comes across exactly the same way. Now, if submission and obedience to church leadership is the biblical norm, then uh, that implies a couple things. It implies that in every church, but especially in a church like ours, where if you're a member, you have the opportunity to approve or reject your own leaders then you are biblically required, I think, to select and approve leaders to whom you are willing uh, to submit and obey. Does that make sense? If you're going to pick leaders, you better pick ones that you're willing to follow. Uh, Because a leader is one who leads, and those who follow, follow. Seems obvious. Uh, And on top of that, it implies that the failure or refusal to submit and obey is actually a serious form of sin. And it also implies that, that 
if you find that you are unwilling or unable to submit to your leaders for biblical rather than merely personal reasons, then you best find a church where you can and will. Let me just give you an example of that. Okay, uh, When I was growing up, uh, the pastor that we had was for several years a good and godly man. But somewhere along the way, he got lost. And he began to pursue some of the women within the church for various kinds of inappropriate relationships. Now, I found myself in a situation where I could no longer submit to and follow and obey that man. That's a biblical reason. Now, what needed to happen in those circumstances, in fact, what did happen, which was that he was removed from leadership. But there are other times and other circumstances in which you might just not, not like a decision that gets made. And guess what? If it's not for a biblical reason, you still need to follow. And by the way, uh, notice this in your Bible, okay? Um, when it addresses this whole concept, there's a, a sense in which it's addressed to all of us. Because we all submit to somebody, right? Uh, at the top, we don't have an organizational chart at our church. But if we did, we would put Jesus at the top of it. And then we would put the elders. And then after them, the other ministry team leaders and deacons and so forth. And then after that, everybody else. Okay? That's how it works. That's how our church is structured. That's, a, in fact, a biblical structure. But that means that nobody is without somebody they have to submit to. Because guess what? There are times, in, even as an elder here at Chillicothe Bible Church, that I have to submit to the other elders. And there are times when they have to submit to me. And if you're, uh, if you're you know, part of the elder board, you understand that. Um, I, we, I don't always agree with all of the decisions that we make as a board. Not all of our decisions are unanimous. Sometimes I disagree. Sometimes one of the elder, other elders disagrees with the rest of us. But when the decision is made, we all go, this is our decision. And we all support it. And we all back it. And we all uh, give our energy to it. Okay? Um, that's, that's part of what it means to submit and obey your church leaders. Right? That we can have discussion, we can argue, we can, we can uh, go back and forth, but at the end of the day, when the decision is made, it's made, and we're going to follow them because we're ultimately following Jesus. Okay? Um, and uh, note the reasons why we do this. Um, we are all under authority within the church, and ultimately we all submit to Christ, who is the chief shepherd, but we submit to and we obey our leaders according to this verse for three reasons. Number one, they have to give account to God for us. They have to give account to God for us. That, in other words, if you're a leader, um, 
In fact, James says this. He says, let not many of you become teachers because you know that those who teach will come under stricter scrutiny at the judgment. Um, you, if you're a pastor, if you're an elder, if you're a deacon, if you're a ministry team leader, will one day have to give account before the Lord for the administration of that job that you had. And you have to give account. And, and because of that, we who follow those leaders, whoever they are, want them to be able to give account for us as in a positive way. So in other words, you know, you don't want to be the person to to whom the Lord is, you know, when the report is is given, well, my ministry was really successful except for if I'd had this person not being the anchor on the boat, <laughs> that would have made things go a lot smoother, right? They're going to have to give account for you, and their their job is to watch over you and to help you, and to uh, and to lead you, and so you want to be easily led. But then, in addition to that, it says here uh, that the job of being a leader should be a joy instead of a burden, and nothing is more burdensome to someone in leadership than having to constantly battle with someone who is just a stiff-necked person. Where you just are all the time saying, well, I have to go talk to so-and-so. <laughs> you know, where you'd almost rather take, have someone hand, you know, you'd almost rather hand them a stick to beat you with than talk to them, right? You'd, you don't want to do it. Well, why not? Because they're just obnoxious and a pain in the neck, right? No one wants to deal with somebody like that, Okay. Or if, you, if you're a boss at your job and you have that one person that you, for whatever reason, cannot get rid of, but can't wait for the day when they quit or retire or something so that they are out of your hair, right? You know, when, if they offer a buyout, you encourage them to take it. so You no longer have to deal with them, right? The job, especially in church, the job of being a leader is meant to be a joy and not a burden. Right? And then on top of that, according to the scripture here, submission benefits us. It says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, the idea that you submit joyfully and willingly to leadership over you is meant to be of benefit to you. And you know what I've discovered is I've had to submit on some things that I didn't really want to or agree with or like. I have learned humility in that process. I have learned that my ideas aren't always best or right or even good, <laughs> right? Uh, and that I have learned how to, um, how to make myself decrease and the gospel increase in the process of that. And that's a good thing. Submission is a good thing that benefits those of us who do it, right? Now, let me also be very clear about this. Leadership in this church really is a joy most of the time. It really is most of the time. 
I mean, we all have days. Everybody has days. I have had them when even your calling becomes a job. Amen? And you just go, okay? Like the joke about the guy who laying in bed and and his wife comes in and gets him up and she's like honey you got to go to church and he says i don't want to he goes why not she goes i don't like them and they don't like me over there and i'm not going give me three good reasons why i should and she says to him well number one because going to church is part of what we do as Christians, and it honors Jesus. Number two, because there are people over there who love you and care about you and pray for you and would enjoy seeing you. And number three, because you're the pastor. (laughs) Okay. Now, we don't have that at our house, okay? We don't have that at our house. Uh, Leading here is a joy, and I love you, and I love ministering among you. So on this, let me just say, good job, Chillicothe Bible Church. Excel still more. This is not something that that I am addressing at length because I think it's a big problem we need to address, but simply to address it from a biblical way and to explain what it is the apostle is talking about. Now, moving on to verses 18 and 19, the apostle also exhorts us to pray for our leaders. And here in the immediate context, it's about praying for the apostle and his team, but by application, it's about praying for church leadership. And let me tell you something, if you're a ministry leader here, you already know this, but we need your prayers. We need your prayers. We need your prayers. Because guess what? We don't know what we're doing all the time. Now, sometimes we have very clear direction from the Lord as to what we're supposed to do and where we're supposed to go and how we're supposed to get there. But a whole lot of the time, we just pray and go, God, give us wisdom here on what to do. Amen? One of the most encouraging things I hear on a regular basis, I hear this whenever Geraldine is here. She comes through the line back there and she sees me. She puts a hand on me and says, you know, Pastor, I pray for you every day. And you know what? I know that Geraldine prays. And I know that she prays for me. And it encourages me like crazy to hear her say that. I love it because I need it. And you know what? If you're in ministry, you need it. You need people to pray for you. Because we need God's power to work through us and in us as we minister and serve. And this is a good reminder for us to pray because, you know what? One of the hardest things in the world to do is to get Christians to pray. I kid you not. One of the hardest things in the world to do is to get Christians to actually pray regularly and specifically for things other than, you know, my, I have a hangnail this week, I'm sick, I'm whatever, my aunt is, you know, got a broken toe. I mean, what have, and I'm not minimizing those things because God cares about those things. But what I'm talking about is to actually seek the Lord on behalf of eternal things. 
And I had a, a, a pastor that I know who says this, and I think he's exactly right. He says, prayer does not bring revival. Prayer is the revival. Prayer is the revival. Because when Christians get serious about prayer is, when, is, is one sign that we know that revival has come. Prayer is the revival. And so we need to pray. We need to pray for the church. We need to pray for the election. We need to pray for one another. We need to pray for the gospel to go out. We need to pray for our leadership. We need to pray for everything that goes on in our life. And as we do that, what we discover is that revival does come and God does work in us, first of all, and then outward from us to other people. Pray for your leaders. Pray about all things. When Christians get serious about, about prayer, revival is there. So let's pray for our leaders. Now, verses 20 and 21. This is a prayer. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, as you read this, you can step back from it and say, wow, that is a lot of theology packed into two verses of prayer. But I want to explain this so that it is more than just words. First, notice how God is described. He's not just God. He's the God of peace. Why? Because he is the one who brought Jesus Christ to life from the dead. And Jesus' death and resurrection is the thing which establishes peace between us and God. Because our sins deserve death, and a loving and holy God saves us from death through the blood of Jesus Christ, whom he raised from the dead. And that loving and holy God is the God of peace. Because by sending Jesus to the cross for us and raising him from the dead, our lives are made new and we are no longer at war with God. But we have made peace with him as we put our trust in him. And our rebellion against God is ended and the peace treaty, which is here called the eternal covenant, has been signed in the blood of Jesus. And second, notice how Jesus is described. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Well, who are, who are the sheep? Uh, that's me. That's you. That's all of us. We're the sheep. We're the sheep. Now, interestingly, okay, interestingly, that the words that he uses to describe Jesus, the chief shepherd, are, if you will, if you want to translate that another way, the word for shepherd, pastor, is related to the place where sheep eat, pasture, okay? And, and the word that's here used would basically translate, if you wanted to put it in a little more modern English, senior pastor. That's, that's Jesus' title over the church. 
I know I carry that title in our church, but honestly, it's the wrong one, right? We just want to designate the guy who preaches most of the time. But Jesus is ultimately the senior pastor over the church. And we are all of the sheep in his pasture. And ultimately, he is the shepherd and pastor for every one of us. And third, notice why God did these things. Why did God make Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep? Why did he raise him from the dead? Why did he sign a peace treaty between us and him in the blood of his son? Why did he do that? Uh, So that, you want to know what God's will is? Here it is. Underline, circle this verse. That you may do his will, that which is working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight. Um. Here's what that means. When we are brought to faith in in Christ by God's Holy Spirit, then He saves us in order that we might have life and that we might follow Him. And then He gives us everything we need in order to do that. So he gives us the Holy Spirit, he gives us his word, he gives us empowerment from the Holy Spirit, and he is at work in us to produce the things he wants to see us produce. So in, in, it's very much like this, I've used this illustration before, but when, when the kids were little over at South School, they would have every year the annual Christmas shopping thing. And they would get some moms, and they would have some, some stuff that the kids would be able to buy as Christmas presents for their family and for their parents, right? And I remember one year I got some cologne, and I got, I got some buttons and mugs and various things. And, and where did the kids get the money? You're looking at him. All right. <laughs> and, and, and for whom did they buy the gifts? me, right? And, and also for Karen and also for their brothers and sisters. But again, who supplied everything that they needed in order for this to happen? We did, okay? And it's very much the same way in our relationship with God. Who brought us into relationship with God? God did. Who brought us to faith in God uh, through Jesus Christ? God did. Who paid the penalty for our sin? God did. Who gave the Holy Spirit that we might be redeemed and regenerated and made holy? God did. Who is at work right now in your life to produce in you the kinds of things that God wants to see from you? God is. So from start to finish, your salvation is an act of God. And even the things that you do in order to honor God are done through his enablement, empowerment, and equipping. All these things are accomplished through Jesus Christ. He is the source, he is the empowerment, and he is the means by which we possess eternal life and are changed to produce what is pleasing in the sight of God. And the Apostle's prayer is that we, who are reading his letter, would experience all these things. And you know what? I think this is a prayer that God will answer. 
I think it's a prayer that he answered for those folks back then. I think it's a prayer that he will answer for us today. And so I want to take just a minute and pray that over us. So if you'd bow with me right now, we're going to pray this, these, these lines, okay? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now let's look at the last three verses here. The apostle writes, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, and those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Now, I've got to be honest with you. Many times I've read through uh, uh, the concluding verses of an epistle like this or even this one, and I thought, okay, well, we're at the end now. Uh, all of the stuff I'm supposed to learn uh, has already been said, and this is just kind of personal asides and details relevant only to the original readers and really not relevant at all to me. Because, I mean, we're talking about Timothy, we're talking about release from prison and all this kind of stuff. And, and really, none of that's happening in my life. And none of it's happening to anybody I know. And so, all, this, all the good stuff was at the beginning. And now we've just kind of got these throwaway verses at the end. And I actually was thinking that this week as I was, as I was putting my outline together and going, well, what do I do with those verses? What are they about? What does it mean? What does it say? And, and I don't know what to do with that. I, you know, whatever. And, and what I very clearly, as I was having that thought in my mind, I felt the Spirit speak to me and say, all Scripture is breathed out by God. That's 2 Timothy 3.16, in case you're curious. All Scripture is breathed out by God. In other words... Listen, genius, this is for you too. And so I began to look a little more closely. And what I realized is that this, this part of the text operates on two levels. First of all, it's there to communicate in a real situation, real details about a real apostle and this Hebrew congregation to encourage them to apply what they have just learned and just read. But I think the reason the Spirit of God has preserved it for us is twofold, actually. To, first of all, encourage us, as he had just encouraged them, to hold fast to what they have been reading and studying and applying, to hold on to that. Because nowhere in Scripture are we ever encouraged to simply know what the Bible says without doing it. We're to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so, you know, verse 22 is there to tell us, hey, all this stuff you've been reading for 13 chapters, 
Put that into practice. Embrace that. Follow that. Hold fast to that. Obey that. Do that. But then you also have these details that are there that talk about all the things that are going on with various people. And they're there uh, to show the affection and love that exists between these leaders and these people. And so these details that are ostensibly on the surface about travel and about greetings sent and received and about prayers for grace to descend and addressing the group as brothers, these are not just formalities. They are there to show us what love in God's family looks like. That, that it's not just simply exhorting one another for 13 chapters to uh, obey and hold fast and to cling to God's word and to not give up and to persevere and to believe all of this great theology that we have learned. It's to overflow into relationships of love and affection. And so he's saying to, saying to them things like, pray for me that I can come back to you sooner. Timothy's been released, and he's on his way to see you, and I want to come see you, and I'm going to come as soon as I can and pray that this will happen. And may God's grace be on all of you. Why? Because I love you. That's the underlying message of all of those verses is of the love between these people that this is not just some guy kind of coming down and pronouncing from on high, but this is a group of people who love each other and who respect the person who sent them this. How do we know they respected him? By the way, because they kept it. And they preserved it. And they said, this man spoke the word of God to us. And we are keeping this and preserving it and passing it on because it is profitable not just for us but for, but for everyone who will read it after us as well. And this is what love looks like. It looks like inquiring about what's going on and praying for each other and, and encouraging each other. And I can't wait to be with you again. Those kind of things being said and meant and expressed and felt. And that's what church is supposed to be like, right? It's supposed to be like family. And this, the end of this reads like family, talking to each other. And we are family. Amen? So let's go before the Father together. Talk to Him. God, our Heavenly Father... We thank you that we are those whom you have brought out of darkness into your marvelous light, whom you have saved from sin and death and hell by the blood of the eternal covenant established with Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you bring us into a family where we can love and serve and submit to and follow and enjoy and uh, relate to and have fun with each other. Uh, Father, you didn't simply save us to leave us on our own. You saved us to bring us into your family. And we thank you for that. And we pray that your grace would descend on us and that we would be exactly this kind of family that loves each other well. 
and follows you very well. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.